Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. Shortly after 2.15 a.m. on October 13, 1984, a call came in to the police from a man concerned about his girlfriend. Ben McCall told the dispatcher he had been on the phone with his girlfriend, 20-year-old Angela Samota. He believed she had let a man into her apartment on Amesbury Drive in Dallas, Texas. Ben told the dispatcher he was worried because Angela didn't call him back after telling him she had let the man in to use the bathroom. He got no response when he knocked on the door of her apartment. Dallas police officers Ken Bajenska and Janice Crowther arrived at the apartment complex around 20 minutes later and spoke with Ben in the parking lot. He told the officers that Angela had been out with friends that night, and although she had invited him, he declined because he had to work early the next morning. Angela had called over to his house once she dropped her friends home, and Ben said they spoke for a few minutes while Angela joked about him having to wake up a few hours later. Angela called Ben shortly after she returned to her apartment at around 1.45 a.m. and explained that a man had asked to use her bathroom. She had let him into the apartment. Angela told Ben she would call him back and hung up. She never called back and hadn't answered when Ben had rung her phone numerous times. She also hadn't responded when he knocked on the door, so he called the police to report his concerns. The officers approached Angela's apartment door and began knocking. They also received no response, so Officer Crowther spoke with a property manager and got a spare key to the apartment. They told Ben to wait at the door while they looked for Angela inside. As Officer Bajenska walked into the apartment, he spotted a black shoe on the living room floor. He would later say this quickened his pulse 
because he knew Angela wouldn't be walking around with just one shoe on. Crowther searched the kitchen and living area for Angela while Bajenska made his way toward the bedrooms. In the second bedroom, he found Angela. She was lying face up on the bed as though she were staring at the ceiling. She was completely naked and covered in blood from the horrific injuries to her chest and abdomen. Her body was at an angle, leaving her legs dangling off the end of the bed. The officer checked for signs of life, but it was too late. Angela Samoda had been murdered. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 72 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Angela was a student at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. She was a junior studying double majors in computer science and electrical engineering. Angela was also a member of a sorority, Zeta Tau Alpha. She was the youngest of five children, and she lost her father before her first birthday when he suffered a fatal heart attack. After being raised in Amarillo, Angela had attended the Hockaday Private Prep School in Dallas to give her the best chance at obtaining a top-class education. She had been dating Ben McCall for around eight months at the time of her death, and, by all accounts, they had a good relationship. Ben worked as a project manager for a construction company and lived in Dallas. The couple spent as much time as possible together when Angela wasn't studying or working part-time at Texas Instruments. The city of Dallas was packed with people on Friday, October 12, 1984. The state fair was on, as well as the annual Texas OU football game, so it was no surprise that Angela wanted to go out with her friends to join in the festivities. After having lunch with her friend Anita Kadala and one of their professors, they went back to Angela's condo to get some sleep as they planned to stay out that night. Angela left her long, fair hair down and paired black pumps with a black silk jumpsuit before calling her friend, Russell Buchanan, and inviting him to go out with her and Anita. Russell had only met Angela a couple of weeks earlier, but he was eager to get to know her better. He walked the five-minute journey from his house to Angela's condo before realizing that he was underdressed, so he had to return home to change before they left. Ben had to decline an invitation to join the group as he had a work meeting early the following morning, so Angela drove her friends to some bars and a club in Dallas. The bars were packed with people partying, and as the night on the town progressed, Angela tried one last time to coax her boyfriend to join them in the exclusive members-only backroom of the Rio Room. 
band didn't budge, but the group wasn't discouraged. They stayed in the Rio room until after midnight, and then got into Angela's car to make their way back to their own homes. Angela dropped Russell off first, then made the short journey back to her own condo off campus so Anita could collect some of her belongings. Anita had planned to spend the night, but changed her mind when she remembered that Angela had early morning plans to go to a football game in Waco. After dropping Anita back to her dorm, Angela went to Ben's house. It was around 1.30 a.m. when knocking at the front door woke Ben McCall from an already broken sleep. Still groggy, he rolled over and glanced at the clock before getting out of bed and answering the door. Angela was in good humor, and he felt like she had stopped by to rub it in that he had to work early the next morning. She laughed when she told him she had just stopped by to bug him before saying goodnight and getting back into her car. Ben had barely settled back into bed when his phone began ringing around 15 minutes later. Talk to me, Angela told him from the other end of the line. She sounded strange, rambling nervously, and seemed evasive when Ben asked what was going on. In the background of the call, he could hear someone else in the condo. And, after asking twice if someone else was there, Angela told him that a man had asked to use her bathroom, so she had let him in. Ben could hear Angela tell someone that the bathroom was down the hall. Angela was clearly second-guessing her decision and kept Ben on the phone for a couple more minutes to ask him if there was a payphone at a convenience store nearby. When he said he thought there was, Ben heard her repeat his words to whoever was in the apartment with her. She then told him she would call him back in a few minutes and hung up. After a few minutes, Ben tried to call her, but she didn't answer. So, after trying again and again, he decided to drive to her apartment. He had a work phone in his truck, and he kept trying to call Angela's phone as he drove the 10-minute journey to her condo. When he pulled into the parking lot, he could see Angela's car was still there, so he ran up to the second floor and began knocking on the door and trying to see through the window. He tried to open the door, but it was locked, and when he tried the back door, he found it was locked too. Ben grabbed his phone from his truck and dialed Angela's phone again. He could hear it ringing inside the apartment, but couldn't hear anyone moving around. Thinking that she may have walked with the man to the convenience store nearby, he drove over, but there was no sign of Angela. Less than an hour had passed since she had arrived home, and when the police entered the condo, they found that in that time, she had been subjected to a brutal attack. Angela Samoda was discovered lying on her back on her bed next to a large stuffed rabbit. The headboard behind her was covered in blood, indicative of a cast-off trail caused by someone repeatedly raising and lowering a bloody object. Her black silk jumpsuit had been piled on top of one of her shoes on the floor by the bed. After Officer Bajenska determined that she was not alive, he did a sweep of the condo to make sure the attacker was not hiding somewhere. 
He checked the bathroom and noticed a smudge of blood on the light switch as well as bloodstains on the shower curtain and in the bathtub. Crime scene analysts were sent to the scene, which was cordoned off to allow investigators to begin documenting and collecting evidence. Consistent with Ben's statement about the phone call he'd had with Angela in which she said she had let a man into the condo, there was no sign of forced entry. A knife was missing from a set in Angela's kitchen, and her phone lay on the countertop. Investigators suspected it had been wiped clean, as no prints were found on the phone. There were diluted blood droplets on the kitchen counter, which likely came from someone who had washed blood-stained hands. Next to the single black shoe officers observed in the living area, there was a scuff mark on the carpet leading investigators to believe that Angela had been grabbed suddenly and dragged, causing her shoe to come off in the struggle. They also believed the killer had left through the front door, which would have automatically locked behind him. Angela's autopsy was performed by Dr. Gilliland from the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office. Based on bloodstains on Angela's body, the medical examiner believed that the attacker had been on top of Angela with one hand over her mouth, as they inflicted at least 18 stab wounds to her chest and abdomen. She had defensive wounds on her hands, which showed she had tried desperately to shield herself from the knife, but she was overpowered. Two stab wounds had been inflicted with such force that they had penetrated her sternum. Her left lung had been pierced at least a dozen times. Her heart had been penetrated eight times, one of which went all the way through. A sexual assault examination was conducted and swabs were sent to the crime lab for analysis. Testing confirmed that semen was found inside Angela's body. She was believed to have been raped shortly before death because her body did not have time to break down the semen, which would typically happen with movement. The forensic serologist who analyzed the rape kit said that she did not see the levels of intact sperm in living victims unless they were swabbed immediately after intercourse. This meant that Angela was sexually assaulted moments before she was killed or as she was dying. DNA analysis was not yet developed enough to obtain a DNA profile from the semen found but the investigators could narrow their search by checking if the person whose semen it was was a secretor or non-secretor. This refers to a person's ability to secrete their blood group antigens into bodily fluids such as sweat, saliva, or semen. If a person is a secretor, their blood type can be determined by analyzing other bodily fluids. But in the case of Angela's assailant, they were a non-secretor. With very little to go on, investigators focused on those closest to Angela. Ben McCall had been the one to report his concerns about Angela's safety. He was present when her body was discovered and was her boyfriend at the time of her death, so he was the first person to be questioned. The officers at the scene had noticed that Ben became quiet when he was told that Angela had been murdered. He did not react the way they expected him to, and they wondered if he had a motive to kill Angela. Ben consented to have his truck and apartment searched, 
and provided blood and saliva samples. After analyzing his samples, the investigators learned that Ben was a secretor. This excluded him as a suspect. Police also wanted to speak with 23-year-old Russell Buchanan, the man who had gone out with Angela and her friend Anita on the night she was killed. When they went to his apartment, they got no response, and it wasn't until two days later that they were able to catch up with him back at his residence. Russell told investigators that he had no idea Angela had even been killed, as he had left early the morning after they went out to attend a wedding at the Dallas Country Club, and then he had flown to Houston. Russell had only met Angela just over a week before her death. They had been out with their own friend groups during happy hour at a local restaurant, and Russell had asked Angela out to lunch. He didn't know she was in a long-term relationship, but she had declined his invitation and instead asked him to come out with her and a friend that Friday night. Russell was taken to the station for questioning. He told investigators that Angela had dropped him home that night while Anita was still in the car, and he had not seen her afterwards. Russell willingly provided blood and saliva samples, and, after it was determined that he was a non-secretor like the suspect, he was repeatedly questioned and could not be excluded from the investigation. During Angela's first year at university, she had been roommates with another young woman named Sheila. Sheila was devastated by the loss of her friend, and she offered to assist the police in their investigation. She was tasked with speaking with Russell Buchanan in a wiretap operation. Sheila went out to dinner with Russell in an attempt to elicit a confession of sorts, but Russell never said anything incriminating. But Russell had mentioned that Angela had told him about notes she had been receiving from an admirer called Patrick. Police believe the notes came from a man named Joseph Patrick Barlow, who was a student at Southern Methodist University. He was questioned and consented to give blood and saliva samples, revealing that, like the killer and Russell, Joseph Patrick Barlow was a non-secretor. But Barlow had an alibi for the night in question. Delving deeper into Angela's background, investigators learned that Angela had been in a relationship with someone called Lance Johnson while she lived in Amarillo. The relationship had ended on bad terms, and Angela had confided in friends that Lance had threatened her with a knife. Lance was brought in for questioning, and his blood and saliva were tested. He was a secretor which, along with an alibi from people who saw him hundreds of miles away in Amarillo on the night Angela was killed, excluded him from the investigation. For a long time, Russell Buchanan remained the prime suspect. He lived just five minutes from Angela's condo. It was believed he had feelings for her, he was a non-secretor, and his alibi only covered the days after the murder. Russell consented to a polygraph examination, and initially his results showed he was telling the truth. But as the investigation slowed down, investigators reviewed his examination results and felt that he was, in fact, deceptive. There was no concrete evidence tying Russell to the crime, so, despite the suspicion looming over him, he could not be arrested or charged. 
Dallas Crime Stoppers offered a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Angela Samota's killer, but the investigators had exhausted all of their leads by 1985. Angela's family, friends, and sorority sisters refused to give up on their pursuit of justice. They persistently checked in with the police, and Sheila even became a private investigator in an attempt to solve her friend's murder. She had dropped out of SMU after Angela's murder and later said, I could not function. I just kept thinking, these things just don't happen. They didn't happen in my world. It took my innocence. It took away my view of the world. It was a call from Sheila to cold case detective Linda Crum in July 2006 that prompted a reinvestigation. Detective Crum made contact with the Dallas Crime Lab to determine what evidence was still on file. And she learned that the swabs procured during Angela's autopsy were suitable for testing. A DNA profile was obtained and submitted into the national database, CODIS. And in February 2008, Detective Crum was informed that there was a match to a man named Donald Bess. Donald Andrew Bess was born in Arkansas in September 1948. His father was an encyclopedia salesman, so the family frequently moved around, meaning Bess attended 13 different schools by the 12th grade. Bess was the eldest of four children and was particularly close to his younger brother, Gary. Gary later claimed that their mother was a manipulative alcoholic who would often encourage their father to excessively punish Bess when he returned home from traveling sales jobs. According to Gary, Bess had been their father's favorite child until their younger sister was born. Although Bess had tried to get involved in Boy Scouts and football, he stopped participating because he did not like being told what to do or having someone shout at him. Their father eventually got a stable job that meant he did not have to travel, and their mother began working nights to supplement the household income. Gary claimed that their mother's drinking worsened at this time, and she was more self-centered and mean. When Bess was 21 years old, he met and married an 18-year-old we will refer to as Dee. Although their relationship had initially been a happy one, soon after they were married, Bess became disrespectful and insulting towards his wife. He also started to have violent outbursts. She later recalled that Bess had told her that nobody would want me, that I wasn't pretty. It just went on and on until I believed it. On one occasion, when Dee was five months pregnant, Bess threw her against a wall. She hit her head so hard that she sustained two black eyes. For a short time, Dee stayed with her parents, but after marital counseling, Bess convinced her to come home to him despite their pastor's advice that she should not. They had a daughter, and when the little girl was just a few months old, she began crying in her crib in the bedroom. Dee was already pregnant with their second child, and Bess was infuriated by the infant's cries. He went into the bedroom and kicked the crib sending it sliding across the floor to the other side of the room. Dee was terrified for her children's safety, so when Bess went back to work, she left and never came back. She later said, That was the end of it for me. I could take a lot for myself, but not for my children. Bess told her he wanted custody of their son, but not their daughter, 
and he sent a single child support payment of $25. She refused his offer and best surrendered his parental rights. They divorced in 1973. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Bess was an imposing figure. He stood about six feet tall and weighed around 250 pounds. In January 1977, a young woman was walking along a street in Houston, when Bess approached her from behind and covered her mouth with his hand. He flashed a knife at her and forced her into a truck before telling her, You are the victim of my aggression. He emptied her purse, found her address, and told her he would rape her there. At knife point, he forced the woman into her apartment and ordered her to undress before sexually assaulting her. Afterwards, he warned that if she contacted the police, he would kill her. Eight months later, in September 1977, Bess arrived at the apartment of another young woman at around 11 p.m. He asked the woman out on a date, and after she politely declined, he asked if he could get a drink of water. The woman agreed and let him inside. And, after he finished his glass of water, he approached the door as if to leave, but locked it instead. He grabbed the woman by her face and forced her into the bedroom, where he sexually assaulted her. As he covered her face with his hand, she bit him. And, after he left, she alerted a friend who brought her to the police station. She recognized Bess from her neighborhood, and the police were quickly able to locate him as a result. Three women who had been sexually assaulted by Bess identified him at a police lineup, and he was convicted of aggravated rape in 1974 and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Bess was paroled in March 1984, just months before Angela Samota's murder. He wasn't free for long, however, as in 1986 he was convicted of another rape and sentenced to life in prison. 
He was still behind bars in the Institutional Division of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice when he was identified as a suspect in Angela's murder in February 2008. On April 15th, Detectives Linda Crum and Ken Penrod interviewed Bess at the state prison in Huntsville. Bess denied any involvement in Angela Samota's murder, but did agree to provide a written statement of his recollection of the time. In it, he wrote, I got out of prison on parole in March of 1984. During that summer, I went to Dallas to visit some friends. Over the next several months, I visited Dallas three or four times. At the time, I was living and working in Houston. During my visits to Dallas, I met two or three women. Mostly, I would meet them at a bar in the Oaklawn area. One lady was from California and was in Dallas for a foosball tournament. I went with her to a hotel in Irving, and we had sex. Another lady I met, I went with her to Granbury, I think, and we spent the weekend there. I remember another girl that I met at a bar, but I don't remember anything about her. I have never hurt anyone. Most of the rest of 1984, I stayed home in Houston and worked. During sex with any girl, I have never been violent. Detective Crum described how Bess had complained that the investigators had ruined his day, as he thought he would miss his chance to eat. He also felt it would damage his chances of getting parole. Detective Penrod remarked, This lady has lost her life brutally, and his concern was whether or not he was going to have an appetite the rest of the day. Investigators obtained a warrant for a buckle swab from Bess, which was sent for comparison to the DNA obtained from Angela's postmortem swabs. On May 5, 2008, the DNA results confirmed that Bess was the person who had contributed the sperm sample, and he was charged with capital murder. Over 20 years had passed since Angela was killed, and the developments in the case gave her friends, family, and sorority sisters a sense of relief. A vigil was held at the SMU campus where those who knew and loved Angela spoke of their memories of her. Her Zeta Tau Alpha sorority sister, Ann Reeves, said, She was beautiful inside and out. She was a nice, vivacious woman. She was incredible, but it just sometimes feels inadequate just to say that. The arrest marked the first time the Dallas Cold Case Squad had solved a murder inquiry since it was reformed, and it was a relief to the original investigators, including Detective Jones. He believed that because Bess had committed the rapes he was convicted of in Houston, his name did not come up during their investigation, but he never forgot about Angela Samota's case. Detective Jones told the Dallas News, The reason I remember it is because it's not just innocence lost. The young girl, pretty much in her prime, she wasn't a bad girl, she was a decent girl. So many of these cases, the people that get out there and get themselves killed are putting themselves in a position to do it. Here she is in her home. She's trying to do the right things and trying to live life. When charges against Bess were announced at a press conference in May 2008, Lieutenant Craig Miller, who was the commander of the homicide unit, said that he believed that Bess had followed Angela from a bar to her condo and waited for her to go inside. He then knocked on her door and asked to use her bathroom and phone, a ruse he had used to commit his prior crimes in 1977. 
When Angela's boyfriend, Ben, arrived at the condo half an hour later, it was likely that Bess was still inside and killed Angela to stop her calling out for help. He probably left through the front door when Ben went to the convenience store to look for Angela. After the press conference, Angela's brother Thomas released a statement that read, in part, Angie grew up a star. She worked hard. She had the highest moral and ethical standards and cared for everyone. She returned the love she had been given over and over. Her brutal slaying devastated our lives. All of us are now reliving this grief. I personally have and will have no compassion not even the slightest wrinkle for that cold-blooded murderer of my sister. The loss is too great, the sorrow too much to bear. Bess was indicted by a Dallas County grand jury in January 2010 on a single count of capital murder. The indictment stated that he had intentionally caused Angela Samota's death by stabbing her with a knife in the course of committing a sexual assault. His trial began five months later, in June, before District Judge Carter Thompson. In their opening remarks for the state, prosecutors Pat Curlin, Josh Healy, and Jennifer Bennett outlined the facts of the case. They said that Bess had admitted to being in Dallas around the time of the murder, and the DNA evidence showed that his sample was a 1 in 2.6 quadrillion match to the DNA found inside the victim's body. Prosecutors alleged that Bess had used a knife from Angela's kitchen in the attack and disposed of it afterwards. Bess's defense attorney, Richard Franklin, conceded that it was Bess's DNA found, but it only indicated that he had sexually assaulted Angela. It did not prove that he had killed her. Franklin told the Dallas News, I'm not so sure they can prove there was a murder committed in the course of committing a rape. I would say there's a probability that somebody else killed her. I just don't know how high that probability is, really and truly. Ben McCall testified about his relationship with Angela and his interaction with her on the night she was killed. He recalled that she had tried to convince him to join her and her friends on a night out, and, after he refused, she had stopped by his house. The witness told the court that she had said she just came by to bug him and then laughed. Ben was disturbed enough by the phone call she made to him a short time later to go over to check if she was okay. After alerting the police, who ultimately discovered that Angela had been murdered, he was in shock. He said her death had hit him hard, but he had a good support network. Ben stated, I think the main thing was that there was a lot of people around watching me. I mean that in a good way. I was not allowed to sit around and mope. I certainly had a hard time for a long time. Anita Kadala and Russell Buchanan also testified about their night out with Angela. Despite being the main suspect during the initial investigation, Russell Buchanan held no grudge against the investigators. He told the Dallas Morning News, It wasn't their fault. If that was your daughter that had been killed, wouldn't you want the police department to use whatever means necessary to find the truth? I would. As far as I'm concerned, the Dallas Police Department does not owe me an apology. They never did. I'm grateful for the work and service they did. That's it. Period. 
The first police officers on the scene in 1984 then took the stand. Senior Corporals Janice Crowther and Kenneth Bajenska recalled entering Angela's condo and finding her body in the bedroom. Bajenska told the court, It looked like it was the result of evil preying on innocence. The horrific image of Angela's bloodied body had remained with Crowther for over two decades. She testified, From that day to this one, I could close my eyes and see Angela. I remember seeing her blue eyes, and that's a scene I've seen since. It appeared her heart had been cut out. The trial was temporarily halted when Bess suffered a heart attack. He had diabetes and cardiac disease and already had had two stents installed before the trial, and the stents had to be cleared of clots before the trial could resume. The lead investigator on the case, Senior Corporal Virgil Sparks, told the jury that he believed Angela was killed when Ben began knocking frantically on the door. He told the court, I believe that when McCall knocked on the door, she tried to get up or call out. It was alleged that Bess then quickly washed the blood off himself in Angela's shower before leaving through the front door, which explained the diluted blood on the bathtub and in the drain. The medical examiner who had performed the autopsy on Angela's remains in 1984 also testified. Dr. Gilliland believed that Angela had been killed almost immediately after being raped. This was corroborated by testimony from Dr. Sarah Williams, who had analyzed the vaginal swabs taken during the autopsy. She told the court she had learned two things from the amount of intact sperm found on the swabs. One, that it's seminal fluid, and two, that the sample was taken pretty much at the time of intercourse. Dr. Williams explained that seminal fluid would normally break down shortly after intercourse, and it was very uncommon to find intact spermatozoa on a swab. David Spence, the trace evidence supervisor from the Dallas County Crime Lab, had been asked to review the blood spatter evidence before the trial. He told the court that the patterns of blood spray and cast-off indicated that the attacker had been on top of Angela while they stabbed her, which explained the lack of blood in certain areas. Spence testified, It would be consistent with the assailant on the bed facing the headboard and striking with the right hand. In their closing argument, the prosecution said they hoped Angela Samota had not suffered. Pat Curlin told the court, I can't help but think Angela was gone in an instant and didn't have to live through that pain that this man, and no one else, inflicted on her. We know it was him. After just over an hour of deliberations, the jury returned with a verdict finding Donald Bess guilty of capital murder. The following day, that same jury was tasked with listening to testimony in the punishment phase of the trial to decide whether or not to spare Bess or sentence him to death. Evidence about Bess's prior convictions were presented as was testimony from corrections officers who had interacted with Bess during the time he had spent in prison. Bess's victims and ex-wife also testified about the abuse and assaults he had subjected them to. Angela's siblings, John and Gail, spoke about the impact their sister's murder had on them. Gail said that Angela was the youngest in the family and was in a good relationship when her life was stolen. 
Angie, to me, was like my baby because I was 13 when she was born. It gave me the opportunity to have a live doll. Gail had been the one to pack up Angela's off-campus condo after her murder and hadn't been able to part with many of her sister's belongings. She explained that Angela's death had influenced her decision not to have any children of her own and that the news of an arrest after over 20 years had made her feel like she was in the twilight zone. Gail said, It's just really unspeakable. I try not to speak of it. I try to bury it, and yet I try to hold on to the good times. John Samota told the court that they had hoped Angela would be the star of the family as she pursued a career in electrical engineering. Angela's murder made him fear for his own daughter's safety. In mitigation, Bess's defense called medical experts who testified about Bess's heart condition. They also presented prison records from Bess's 32-year time behind bars that showed that in that time, he had obtained 29 disciplinary infractions but was otherwise a quiet prisoner. Bess's younger brother also testified and pleaded with the jury not to sentence Bess to death. Prosecutor Josh Healy asked the jury, If Donald Bess isn't deserving of a death sentence, then who is? Who's done this much harm? Who's tormented this many people? On June 18, 2008, the jury returned finding that Donald Best deliberately caused Angela's death and that he would probably commit violent acts again and be a threat to society and that there was insufficient mitigating circumstances to warrant a sentence of life imprisonment. Bess was sentenced to death. Angela's friend and old roommate, Sheila Wasaki, continues to work as a private investigator and consults on numerous media publications as well as hosting her own podcast, Without Warning. Donald Bess had two failed appeals in the decade after his trial. He died following a heart attack in September 2022 while awaiting execution. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please... Be safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.